0: So here's the fear inventory. If I can get to this place where I realize the light can't exist without the darkness, that there is no duality, there isn't good and bad, everything is just the way it is.
1: Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak My little quarantine chickadees. That was the voice of Mr. Bill C. One more time. When I say one more time, we've had him on many episodes before that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you're going to hear so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first. This episode right here Right now is brought to you by Leon and Victoria. You know what Leon and Victoria did? Leon and Victoria went to our website, Soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Leon and Victoria, for your generous support contribution this episode is coming right out to both of you as normal we are gonna let all the other folks listen on in but this episode is coming right out to you guys thank you very much I John M will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings and I am truly honored and privileged to be serving all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table and let's get started. All right. So I told you all a, a couple of weeks ago or so that I'd be setting up a, a Sober Speak live event. And I was working back and forth with Brenda J on getting a, a live event set up via Zoom. And uh, I just heard back from her today. You know what? She's been so She's in such a demand right now that if we get something, it may be toward the end of May or into June or something like that with her. So I'm going to look at some other alternatives for a live event so we can all get together on a Zoom meeting and watch each other and stare at each other and all that kind of stuff. Uh um i'm gonna try to put something together here soon so you know i don't know if you guys are like me but i've been walking around the past couple three weeks and every day i just kind of look around and go this is so strange this is so strange this is so weird what is going on here with this lockdown whatever you want to call it uh, self-quarantine and uh Anyway, uh, you know, so far so good, uh, you know, except for the people who have been affected directly and my prayers go out to them and their family. But, uh, overall though, it's just been a very, uh, very strange experience. I'm sure you can relate all these, these zoom meetings that we're having and, uh, uh, AA, uh, you know, I like them. Uh, and I'm so thankful they're there. They are there. But it just doesn't replace that face-to-face. And it just doesn't replace that, the, um, how do I put this? It doesn't replace, when a newcomer walks into the room and we can put our arms around him or her and say, we're glad you're here. We're so glad you found us. We love you. We need you. We want you to be here. And uh, it just doesn't replace that. But hopefully things will get back to, what do you want to call that, normal pretty soon. Um, I also wanted to let you know that last week, if you listened to listener feedback, and who wouldn't, I mean, really, who wouldn't stop down in listening to all of listener feedback? I'm sure none of you ever stop listening once we get to listener feedback, do you? Anyway, uh, if you were listening to listener feedback last week, I mentioned that my daughter had gotten a a chameleon. Uh, That's part of what she was doing with some of her spare time that she has nowadays, went to the pet store, got a chameleon, and I was a little, uh, I thought we maybe had a a defective chameleon because it wasn't uh, changing colors. But guess what? I was wrong. It does change colors, and they were telling me that I believe that the females maybe don't change colors or something like that. I I don't quite understand, but all I know is I was happy as a camper to see that chameleon on the top of its cage, hanging upside down with its eyes going 360 degrees around and changing colors and eating Uh, a cricket from like, I I don't know, like 10 feet away or something like that. It was just like, I couldn't even believe what that thing could do with its tongue. I'll just leave it at that. But nonetheless, I had some weird jokes going through in the back of my head. But I am so glad the chameleon can actually change colors. I've been walking around a lot outside lately. It's been kind of part of my daily routine to get out of the house and to take a walk around the neighborhood. And what I've noticed lately is there's some uh, sidewalk chalk, uh, a lot of sidewalk chalk out there. A lot of the kids have been going out and uh, it, uh, some of them have been coloring their mailboxes. Some of them color the sidewalks Some them, they color all kinds of things with this sidewalk. But the other day I was out and I was... Uh, I was actually listening to some podcasts while I was out there walking around, no, not mine. Uh, I get tired of my own voice, but nonetheless, I was listening to some podcasts and, and I noticed there was this this uh, uh, writing on the pathway in front of me, and uh, there's a pathway that goes kind of between the houses on the back side of the houses, and, uh, and on, on the chalk, it said, "Stop right here." I was like, okay, stop. And then I read it and it said, look at the window over here. And it pointed to the window on the left hand side. And as you, or as I turned around and I looked at the window, these kids had made all these kind of just happy happy drawings that they had plastered all over their window and i thought oh that is fantastic I'm, you know where else would you have seen that except for during a time like this and then then a, a couple of weeks ago because all the schools have been shut down and such uh, the teachers from the elementary school that i live near they decided to form a a, a parade with their cars, so they had windows. Excuse me, they had signs out their windows, and they were driving down the streets, and they were yelling "Hi, everybody!" and they were and they were honking their horns, and it was just a big parade going through a a, a car parade going through the neighborhood it was absolutely fantastic i uh, i i just loved it so much people got people have been getting really creative um and I have been eating everything that's not tied down in the house. Uh, yeah, I, and, and I understand that this is a, a thing going around. They, they say that uh, people are gay. You know, like when our freshmen go off to college, they gain their freshman uh, 15. Well, this apparently is called the COVID-19. And I am well on my way to gaining <laughs> that 19 pounds. And I bet there are some of you out there in that same boat. Nonetheless, now... I will stop yapping and we will get on to Mr. Bill C. Step 4. Listen, basically this whole episode is about Bill C. diving really into Step 4 at a at a deep level. He does a great job with it. Uh, but I will tell you this, but one of the more interesting parts of our conversation takes place for me on the beginning of this episode where he talks about what it's like for him to have some level of uh, notoriety, if you will, in AA, if we can get famous in AA and uh, what it's like to be uh, what they call a circuit speaker. So you'll be hearing that and much more from Mr. Bill C. Ladies and gentlemen, please. Without further ado, help me welcome Mr. Bill C. And as usual, I started to say normal and then I uh, switched it to usual. That's why it sounded like usual. As normal, we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. And I know all of you will be listening in. (laughs) Enjoy. Okay, everybody. We are once again sitting here with Mr., the one and only Mr. Bill C. Can you say hello, Mr. Bill C.?
0: Bill Alcoholic. I'm here again.
1: You are here again. And your sobriety date once again, for those who may not have heard you before? March the 27th, 1985. All right. So last time, Mr. Bill C. Well, well, before I go into that, we're we're going to talk about the steps. But I have a friend of mine here. His name's Kevin, actually, in the Dallas area. Who, after he heard your episode last time uh, on, I think it was on steps one, two, and three. I'm not real sure which one he was listening to, but. He called me and he said, oh my goodness, you had Bill C. on the podcast. He said, Bill C. is like a sensei to me. I'd never heard, I mean, I'd heard that term before, but it had been a while. So I'm assuming you get that sometimes. And, And, you know, last time we were on here, you talked a little bit about it, about how, you know, you have a different perspective of where you are within AA now versus where you were Uh, When you first started and trying to kind of scratch your way to the top, so to speak, in an anonymous organization, but when you get people who say that to you, oh my goodness, Bill C, it's Bill C. What I mean, what goes through your mind?
0: What do you think? (laughs) Well, I like it. You know, I mean, the story I've told a lot was, you know, the first time that somebody looked at me with respect in their eyes. I didn't know what that was. I'd never seen it before. And, uh, you know, if if the way people perceive me is in a positive light, like someone that has helped them, um, someone that they admire, uh, what a wonderful thing that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I can tell you is that sometimes it's hard to take because you feel like you don't deserve it.
1: What do you um, mean by that?
0: Well, m- nobody gets to AA with a whole lot of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the story I tell about that is that when I was out in the street, the first one we did, I talk about being the the, the phony biker with the clip-on earring. And what happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous is I became the phony AA guru. And. Uh, i i went through a period of of emotional and mental collapse behind that now it was the same guy the same guy that was the phony biker with the clip-on earring became the phony a guru now the second persona is a lot healthier is a better people got helped you know i helped a lot of people and i did a lot of work you know, like you can have a It doesn't matter if you have a poor motivation to do things. If you do the things, you will be affected by the work, no matter what your motivation is. But you do reach a time in sobriety and that spiritual path and growing up emotionally where you start looking at the motivation. It, It stops working. If the reason I'm doing all this good work is to just build myself up and look better and become somebody, that becomes empty. Um, So that's the point at which you feel you don't deserve the admiration that you're receiving because you know that there's something suspicious about it. Mm. And the way I describe that is it's the death of the ego. Chunks of it begin to fall away and it's very painful. It's not a pleasant experience. And my fall from grace was very public and it was, and it was very difficult it was very hard and uh coming out the other side of that as some years have gone by uh um, the motivation for why you do it changes and so now when somebody comes up to me and and they are they um
1: enamored somehow
0: they're enamored and stuff there's a sweetness about that that can sometimes bring you to tears. Mm-hmm. It's just such a sweet and loving thing. People just want to come up and love on you sometimes. And uh, and I get that. There's people I feel that way about, you know. Um, I was just madly in love with Scott Redmond. Mm-hmm. you know. I, I just wanted to be Scott Redmond. you know. And uh, in some respects, I've done that you know, uh, I think about him every day. You know, he was my dear friend. I lost him. He died and uh, it broke my heart. Um, One time I was standing in a hallway with Sandy Beach at a conference and a bunch of people came up and they were looking at the two of us and bowing and being all cute and funny. and, And they walked away and Sandy said, God, don't you hate it when they do that? And I looked at him and went, no, man. I said, I'm glad (laughs) to be in the same category as you. If that's what's happening, what the hell? And he just let, we both just laughed, you know, it's like, cause you can't help, but laugh at yourself. I think part of of being emotionally mature and moving down the spiritual path is being able to laugh at who you think you are, Mm. you know? And, uh, you know, I, I've been doing it long enough, been around long enough to where, you know, I enjoy the warmth, but I I try not to get too carried away with it. My wife will go with me when I speak sometimes, and we have kind of a running joke, but it's an acknowledgment of my own egoic nature. She'll get in the car with me, and we'll be driving home from a speaking thing, and I'll look at her, and I go, well, how wonderful was I? <laughs> And we have that, I mean, why pretend like you're not thinking that, you know, and she's my best critic. So what you do is you expose yourself, you expose it, you know, but, you know, you hear speakers get up at a podium and sometimes they'll say, oh, I hate doing this. There's so much ego in it, you know, and I'm the only one looking in that direction. You're all looking, I'm not part of, don't believe them. (laughs) We absolutely love it. (laughs) <laughs> if we didn't, we wouldn't do it, right? There is an aspect of it. Do I feel like maybe I'm helping some people? Of course. But there's also, it's me being the center of attention. What's not to like? You know, can you, can you imagine the futility of taking a person like myself? I'm an extrovert by nature. I like being around people. When I'm sitting here at my house and there's nobody around for a couple hours, I'll call some trying to get them to come over. I like having people around me. I enjoy the energy of it all. Could you imagine me trying to be different than that, trying to make mm. myself be different, trying to, this false humility couched in spiritual pride. You know, like I hear people say, well, I, I quit speaking, there's too much ego in it. You know, when I said that to my sponsor, I said that to my sponsor. I said, I think I should quit speaking. Speaking at meetings, there's too much ego in it. You know, I just went through this big collapse at 10 years sober, you know, and, it, and I look, I go, man, there there's something wrong. I need to shut up. There's something wrong with me. And so I went to him, and one of the things I said, I think I should quit speaking at meetings. His, his counsel to me was, you don't get to pick and choose what you will and won't do. You're not in charge of this. But I might, sus- might uh, suggest to you the next time you're speaking in front of a group of people, Why don't you try telling the truth? Mm. And I go, what do you mean? I'm not lying to people. He goes, Bill, stop doing theater and start talking about what's really going on.
1: This is not America's Got Talent.
0: So I started doing that. And it was, you know, I stopped preaching and I started telling the story. So
1: do you remember that shift? Like what that looked like from what you were saying during the first 10 years versus the, what happened the, after the, that? The,
0: the first time that I can recall, you know, after that conversation, and it was, uh, the Rodney King riots. And we, we went to, uh, um, we spoke at, at, uh, a, a club at, uh, Crenshaw Alano Club in South Central Los Angeles and there there was the flames and were still going on it was there was a group of us went in a van from the central office and we went down there and spoke and I got up at the podium and I started talking about ego and uh, I just thought what the hell I mean I couldn't think of anything else to do I'll start talking about what I'm feeling And just start talking and try to do it in an AA context. You know, it's not like group therapy. But I started talking about, you know, I'm up here and you're down there and I love that. You know, you're all listening to me and I love that. I just started and it was humorous. I mean, it was kind of humorous. It was more humorous I thought it was going to be. I mean, One of the things he said when he told me that, he says, if you start telling the truth, we will understand. Like, who do you think you're talking to? You're not that different, you know. I mean, you're just not that goddamn special, you know. And I start talking about ego, and you could see her half the room would groan, and the other half would nod their head. You know, I mean, but both sides were identifying. Oh my God, he's saying it out loud. You know, it's like that. Isn't that funny? You know, look at that guy. And what I remember from that is, that, you know, I got down, and all these people, they, those people couldn't have been more gracious to us. We're in a totally black community they knew we were nervous and they were just so loving it's aa you forget where you are sometimes i mean it transcends color barriers and religion everything it's it's remarkable and that particular evening was especially like that they were very kind they were really grateful that we showed up you know i mean it was really something and but what i remember is i'm standing in the in the, this crowd and i see this very tall older black man walking toward me through the crowd and he's looking right at me and he's grinning like he it really he knew exactly what I was talking about you know and he came up to me and he put his arm around me and he says you're gonna be okay and it just it still chokes me up that's all he said you know you didn't need to say because he knew that I knew that he knew that I knew that you know you know he'd gone through the same thing you know Mm -hmm. probably at some level and uh And so I started, you know, what my sponsor said, telling the truth, which is essentially talk about what's really going on. It's not like dumping it. I mean, like you hear people say, the longer I'm sober, the less I know. All I can think of when I hear somebody say that is, aren't you paying attention? (laughs) You know, what do you mean? I get it. It's some kind of spiritual thing, some sort of false humility thing. But my God, man, I've been sober for 34 years. I should know some stuff. (laughs) you know i should have something to bring to the table you know i know a hell of a lot more about life than i did 30 years ago i mean my god you just pick stuff you can sit in a room and do nothing and pick some stuff up you know i mean it's it's like that so i i you know i try to convey that from a very human perspective here's my story here's here's what's going on with me why would i pretend that i don't enjoy what i do why would i pretend that Why would I pretend that the only reason I'm talking to you people is because I'm trying to help you poor, miserable souls? And God has said, you know, come on. You know, it's a party. You know, this is a pleasure. You know, people say you sacrifice so much. It's not a sacrifice. You know, it's not a sacrifice. It's not what it is. Is it inconvenient sometimes? Oh, absolutely. Life is inconvenient. You know, I mean, sure, you end up in places you don't particularly want to go to on, you know, you'd rather, sure, of course, but that's not a sacrifice. That's just me being self-centered. It's like, you know, I'm lazy, you know, so, you know, so, but my experiences over the years is that when I don't want to go somewhere and I go anyway, invariably, I have a pretty good time or something interesting happens or something, you know, and that happens to you often enough, you just quit trying to manage and control it is clearly this is what I'm supposed to do you know. I mean, one time when I got when I got really sick with the liver thing, and I was still trying to get out and talk, and my sponsor was trying to get me to stop, and, you know, and I, I just, you know, I'd been doing it for so long, I just didn't, I, it was hard to say no. And my grand sponsor, Paul, called me up one day. This guy is a former trustee of AA, really great guy, just a good man. He calls me up and he says, you know, Bill, if you let it Alcoholics Anonymous will chew you up and spit you out. And I said, but Paul, they need me. And he said, oh, my God, it's worse than I thought. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things I've learned over the years, AA doesn't need me. (laughs) It doesn't need me. It's just my turn sometimes. But it doesn't need me. There's plenty of people. You know, Scott Redmond told me one time, he said, when you get up at the podium, look out in the audience and tell yourself that anybody in the room can give the talk. It's just your turn. And he said, because you know what would happen? If you died from a heart attack at the podium, you know what they would do, don't you? And I said, they would drag me off, somebody would replace me, and they would end the meeting on time. And he goes, Exactly. That's how important you are in the scheme of things, you know, and I believe that. I think that's literally true. You know, it's a, Mm -hmm. I'm not that special. Sometimes it's my turn. Mm -hmm. Oh, I went to cliff one time and I, I went drove down to Oceanside and I took him out to dinner and uh, he says, you're going to pay, aren't you? And I go, I always pay cliff, get in the car. So I, I took him out to dinner and I'm talking to him about speaking. He, and he spoke all over the world and, you know, for a long time. And he was somebody I, he was the first real circuit speaker I ever heard back in the day. And and he he was, I just really cherished his relationship. And anyway, I asked him, I said, you know, there's a lot of ego in it. And I wonder about that. And how have you hounded that? And he goes, yeah. He says, yeah, you're right. He says, you have to have enough ego to get up there and do it. And, uh, but he says, I'll tell you something, Bill, if you're the Saturday night speaker at a conference, they're looking for entertainment. Don't be afraid to use your skills. <laughs> he said, but at a local meeting somewhere, it's different. You know, I mean, sometimes it's more heartfelt, but, and there is truth to that. You know, there, there certainly is truth to that. But it, 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 all of that has been a great gift in my life. But I'll tell you something about it. If all I'm doing is speaking at meetings, I'm not really doing AA. If I'm working with guys and reading the book and working the steps with guys, then I've got something to talk about. And that's what we're doing here, talking about the steps. You know, I mean, that's my job. I'm an AA cheerleader. But, you know, there's there needs to be some content. You know, I mean, uh, I, I think what AA is, it's about recovery from alcoholism. That's what we're supposed to be talking about. And I think the sober story is a lot more interesting than the drunken one. Certainly, there should, has to be, needs to be identification. But... You know, the people that I looked up to and admired over the years when they go speak somewhere, people that really talk about the process. Because when I'm in the audience, I want to hear what you think about what's going on. You know, talk to me about what's really going on. How do you do this thing? How did you do it? I'm interested in that. You know, and I'm I'm much more interested in your sober story. That's that story of sobriety and working through the problems in life than I am about you drunk. I identify with the drunkologue. I've got one too. You know, I'll put mine up against yours and let's see who is the worst piece of shit in the world. You know, I mean, it's like we all can do that. And, and I get the identification thing. I, I think it's important. But really, I'm really interested in what you think's going on now. You know, what are you doing now? How, how have you dealt with this? That kind of thing. I think that's fascinating. The, the, one of the great resources that we have in AA is you walk up to people and you ask them something. They, people love to talk about themselves. And there's an immense amount of wisdom in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. the immense amount of experience combined with intellect. We are a society of storytellers. That's how we convey the message is we tell our stories to each other. And some of us in AA are really good storytellers, you know, really wonderful. Sandy Beach was a wonderful storyteller. You know, Scott was wonderful. Many Bob Bazan, a lot of wonderful storytellers, you know, and that, that's an attractive thing.
1: Okay, so let's... Well, first of all, I'm going to do a little break here and then we're going to go on into the. Uh, we'll talk about the third step a little. I'm so glad we ended up talking about that mm-hmm. subject there. That was fantastic. We will be continuing our conversation with Bill C. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to Soberspeak.com. You can find us on the World Wide Web and you can listen to approximately 115, 120 other episodes for free. You can also find the Donate button on our website, and you can use it. And If and only if the spirit moves you to do such, please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. So to speak as a self-supporting organization through our own contributions, we are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution we do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Bill C. So the last time that you and I got together... We, uh, I should say you, for the most part, spoke about step three, uh, and we got kind of to the end of step three. Uh, Is there anything else you want to add on about step three before we go into steps four and possibly five?
0: I think we're done. I think we can move on. Okay. All
1: right. So step four, uh, I know we talked about it a little bit last time. Fourth step, uh, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. What are your thoughts?
0: So in the book, it shows three columns. It talks about after the third step, it says we launched and we're looking for the immovable parts of the inventory. Every business that is successful has to have good inventory control and what you're looking for when you do an inventory is you're looking for the stuff that's not moving that's not selling and you want to get rid of it you know so you can fill it with stuff that is movable so we're looking for the negative parts it's not a list of the good and the bad you know you can do that if you want but specifically in the book it's looking for that stuff that's not moving and there's three categories there's resentments there's fears And there's these broken relationships or sexual behavior, um, you know, what were my faults and mistakes, that kind of thing. So in the book, it shows three columns. There is a controversy in AA to some, at some level of whether there are four columns or just three. And when you read it, as you move on through the book, it talks about we return to the inventory. We look for our faults and mistakes. Many people interpret that to mean that there's a fourth column. So you essentially what you do is you have a resentment and you list that resentment. You say, my father. The second column is, why are we, were, were you resentful? He says, well, he abandoned me when I was a child or he beat me or whatever, whatever the list of transgressions were. The third column it says, how was I affected by that behavior? So if you have four or five different things about your father that he did to you that caused you to be resentful on each one of those things, you want to list how you were affected by that. Was it my um, personal relationships was affected by that? Was, did it instill fear in me? Um, um, Did it affect my pocketbook, you know, my financial security. And so you can, whatever you were affected by that, you know, with, A father, like it it affected my self-esteem. It caused me to feel bad about myself, you know, that there's something wrong with me. And then the fourth column, it says, what are my faults and mistakes? Now, many people say, what was my part in this resentment? And specifically in the book, it doesn't say that. It says, what were my faults and mistakes? People many times say, well, what was my part in this? Well, let's take an example here. Let's say that you were molested as a child that your parent, one of your parents or your uncle or somebody close to the family molested you as a child. So you put that name on that list and say, you know, I have resentment because I was molested. You know, How did it affect me? How did it not affect me? It affected everything. You know, it was a st- stunning experience. I'm still recovering from it. So if you said that fourth column, what was my part? What part could you possibly have played as an innocent child well, the answer is: There's no part. You were truly a victim. Okay. Um, you say, "What are my faults and mistakes?" Well, what could I have What mistake could I have made? Well, let's say you're 40 years old. If you're still carrying that resentment around, at the bare minimum, you're unforgiving. You have a resentment, and you won't let go of it. You're unforgiving, and this isn't about the perpetrator. There's the feeling that, well, if I forgive this person, then I've condoned it. No, not at all. What you want to do is you want to rid yourself of this resentment. And in order to do that, you're going to have to forgive at some level. You might have to get professional help. There's things that you can do. But there was no part. But you do have a responsibility at some level. So that fourth column, or whatever you want to call it, Howard Poland's claim that there's no fourth column the the fact that I believe there was a fourth column was an example of my stupidity. You know, (laughs) he, he, the guy was so brilliant. He made me feel stupid. And it took me a half an hour, 45 minutes to figure out that that's what he had done. (laughs) It was expressed so beautifully, you know, and that, you know, what he, what he would talk about is, is well, it doesn't really matter. I'm a four-column guy. We don't need to go into that kind of detail. If you're really that interested, you can drill down. Get his book, "My Life on a Frozen Lake," Howard P. It's a it's an excellent book, and he was a one of one of the wonderful students of the process. But I was raised as a four-column guy, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to look for my faults and mistake. Now, this fourth column is going to be the source of identifying. My defects of character. I was vengeful. I was arrogant. I was pompous. I instilled jealousy. You know, I'm pissed off at my first wife because she cheated on me with my friend. How did it affect me? It affected my personal relationships. It affected my self-esteem, everything. What was my fourth column? Well, maybe if I hadn't been messing around on her and been in the mental institution and was shooting dope and acting like a fool and running with an outlaw (laughs) motorcycle gang, maybe she wouldn't have had to go look for love somewhere else. I had forgotten all that part. (laughs) That's a classic one. Did I have a part to play? You bet. I played a big part in that. Okay. That's what we're looking for in this inventory, you know, this is the part where it talks about I begin to take responsibility for my own life. At some point, in order for me to grow up emotionally, I have to quit blaming other people or institutions for the problems in my life. I am powerless over them. I have no control. I have to take responsibility for my own life. Does that mean that I was always guilty of something? Not necessarily. But there was at some point in time, I would placed myself to be put in a position to be hurt. Like a lot of dark things happened to me in my life. Why was I hanging out with those people in the first place? Why was I in those places where those things happen in those kind of dark places? What was I doing there? Why was I pretending to be an outlaw biker? Why was I hanging around in places where violence occurs on a regular basis? How did I end up in a mental institution? What was it I did? What was my lifestyle that caused me to have that kind of a mental breakdown? I mean, I'd look at it. I'd come in and go, these things happened to me. Look at what happened to me. Did I play a part? You bet I did. Was I unconscious of it? Yes, I was unconscious of it. I wasn't awake. I was sound asleep. I thought it was all real, but I had no reason to be in those places to be hurt like that. And sometimes I was the perpetrator. Sometimes I hurt people. I played, I played a part in all of that. So in this inventory, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for what my faults and mistakes are. Now, as the years have gone by, when I've done this with people, um, some over 20 years ago, my sponsor and I started taking groups through the steps. W- what would happen early on, I was always working with brand new guys because I was a pretty new guy. And that's who you get. As the years have gone by, I've gotten people now that ask me for help that have been sober a while, and they're looking for a new experience. Some of them have gone through the process before. Most of them that I've run into have never really done the work. They've done a little inventory, but they never completed the amends process, and they're not working with others. So the problem they're having in sobriety is obvious. It's pretty obvious, and they're looking for a new experience. Some of the people have actually done the work and maybe something's changed in their life. Maybe their sponsor died, you know, or they moved on. Maybe their sponsor got loaded, you know, and they're looking for something different. So what I started doing with my, my sponsor got me into this is we started taking groups of the steps using a manual. Um, we first started using Dr. Paul's an unofficial guide to the 12 steps. And uh, Paul put that together. It came out of a group in Texas that put this thing together and Paul made a pamphlet out of it. And it was something he could take into prisons you know, rather than the big hardcover book. He could take that into prisons. But so we started doing uh, the, Dr. Paul's 12th. And it's, and it's designed for groups to go through the steps of groups. It asked a series of questions, had formats to it. Then as years ago, we found another one and it's uh, my buddy, Bill Schaberg put this one together. It's a Stratford men's group in Connecticut. And he's got a, a whole big, and it's really good, I think. And it's, it's a, you, you put it together in a binder and it's got room to do the inventory and all this stuff. And it goes through, it takes about six months to go through it. So what we would do is take, get like four or five guys together and we pick a name for our group and stuff. And, and there isn't really a specific leader. You go through it, you're all together, all together. And you don't do your fifth steps in the meeting, but you know, you can, a lot of comes out, especially if you're doing it with guys that have been around a little bit, it's amazing what comes out in a group dynamic. And uh, so for over 20 years, I did that consistently, you know, for 20 years, I would do groups and then do individuals. And, so let
1: it, me ask you real quick, would you, would you go through the other pieces with the group as well? In other words, like the first step, second step, third step? Or well, this manual goes
0: through all that. It's Got not it. just the inventory.
1: So it was basically a step study for large groups.
0: Yeah, or small groups, actually. I do four or five guys. But it takes you through all the steps. There's certain, you, you read in the, out of the big book and out of the 12 and 12, and then you come to the group and you answer the questions that are in the manual. And then when you come to the group, you don't do the reading in the group. You answer your questions. You go around the room and everybody gets a turn to answer question number one and two and three and four pertaining to that chapter in the big book. So it's a pretty in-depth, big book study. And it goes you through the inventory and through the amends process and the whole thing. Six months. It takes six months meeting once a week. So it's pretty detailed. Much more so than the Dr. Paul book. But I still use the Dr. Paul book when a guy's going to do his inventory. I'll give him one of those manuals. i say, read the four-step guide in this. It's really good. It'll help you. You know, that, that kind of thing. I'm a real believer in one-on-one sponsorship. You know, I mean, and part of that, part of this, part of how I develop compassion, and learn how to be close to you is when you're sponsoring somebody one-on-one and you're getting together once a week and you're reading the book, just the two of you, that's an intimate situation. There's a lot of conversation that happens. Things change and you go through an inventory and you listen to a guy's fifth step, the relationship you have with that individual changes. Then you get them into the amends process. You start going over and put their amends on a three-by-five, and you start discussing that, and you go into more detail about what was written down in the inventory. By the end of this process, you know this person pretty well. And how does he identify with you? Because you tell him your stuff. You know, so essentially, for pretty close to 35 years, I've been reading the book and doing inventories on myself. Because I'm doing it with them, you know I mean you never stop doing the work now you can get yourself in a place to where you're the teacher and they're the student and you're not really doing the work yourself you're guiding them through it and that's okay. there is a place for that, but when you do it with a group, did I do an inventory every time? No, but I would keep my old one and I would update it if there were resentments, like the last inventory I did that had any depth at all the only resentment I could come up with is my children don't love me enough. That is pathetic. (laughs) That's the best thing I could come up with. You know, I think that's pretty cool. Actually. If that's, if that's the only thing you can come up with, things must be getting better. You know, (laughs) I'm essentially pretty bored to tears with myself. I find you much more fascinating, but you know, I'm constantly reading the book. I mean, right now I've got two guys I'm reading the book with. They come over and we read the book, you guys, you know, constantly. It never stops. But each person that you're doing with is different than the one before. Everybody's un- pretty unique. You know, I mean, you get to know people. That's how you do um, compassion. So in in the inventory, you got four columns or three, however you want to do it. I'm not going to argue. It doesn't matter. You're going to do this inventory and you're going to start taking responsibility for your own life. And you're looking for that fourth column. You're looking for my faults and mistakes. You know, where's this? And the fear inventory, there's a couple of ways to do this. One of the ones I've liked that I like that I've heard about, and I haven't specifically done it is you write down the fear that you have could be anything, say sharks, whatever it was, you know, I mean, some of them are practical fears, other ones are, you know, fear of people in general. You know, there's some people that are just afraid. They don't get along well at all. You know, they're very introverted, very shut down. You know, fear of women, um, fear, of, uh, um, um, uh, fear of sickness, fear of illness, fear of getting old. You know, I've been conf- looking at that one. Am I afraid of it? I keep asking myself, are you afraid or are you hiding it with bluster and bravado, you know, in uh. And I'm kind of glad I made it, actually. <laughs> Wasn't looking too good there for a while. But you have these fears. Then you give a brief description of the fear. Some of them are obvious, you know, sharks, because they're sharks. It's like, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> fear of people. You know, well, I'm fear of physical confrontation. I'm afraid if I go in public places, a fight's going to break out. You know, it can be more specific. Specifically, what are you afraid of? Okay, that's good. Then the other one is, I've heard people talk about this, is that, what would my life be like if God were to remove that fear? What would would my life be like if I didn't have that fear? I think that's a good question. The other one I like is, have you asked God to remove this fear? I mean, have you specifically? Have you gotten on your knees or however you want to do that and said specifically, please take this away from me? I can't do it. You know, or do you just look at it and hope it goes away? Or have you taken any real action to remove that fear? I think that's good. One of the things a friend of mine says about uh, Steve Lamb, he says uh, the sixth and seventh step, sixth step says we become willing, seventh step says we humbly ask. What Steve says, what most of us do is is we become willing, we just don't humbly ask. (laughs) It's like, you know, and, you know, being a godless pagan like I am, You know, listing fears and then actually asking for it to be removed. I wouldn't ever consider doing that. What would I be praying to? But I'll tell you something. When I started doing that, stuff happened. Hmm. Stuff happened. Um, There's a lot of fears that I have that I don't have anymore. How did that happen? I think through the process of doing this work. Over the years of my sobriety, I've done three significant inventories. But I've done a lot of many ones. Like when I was going through that groups, like updating one. But I've done three where I sat down and really did a full-on inventory. And the third one was pretty minor, actually. The third one was when I when I started. I wanted to do fifth steps with some of the guys I sponsor to break down that thing. And I, and I did like a current, this is what's going on with me. And there were like two or three things I just didn't want people to know about me. And uh, nothing big, nothing, just kind of pathetic stuff, you know, like my kids don't love me enough. I mean, when you say that to somebody, like I said that to you, you heard me say that you immediately laugh like, well, that's pathetic, because it is. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, you know, that I I have these feelings and I keep it to myself because I want you to think I'm more spiritual than I am. I don't want to bring my my image down in your eyes. So I did that inventory and I shared it with with Matthew and, and another another guy that I sponsored for a long time, just to be, this is what's going on with me, you know, just to become, to get more right-sized. But I've done three significant inventories over the years, but a lot of minor ones, a lot of like what people would call 10 step or eleven step, kind of like, here's what's going on now, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, so – In the inventory, you go through the fear list. As the years have gone by, the fear list is really kind of more important or more significant than the resentment list. And a lot of my fears are centered around resentments. Um, My belief about that is, is that the reason I have fears is because I don't have faith. The way that looks in my life today, they asked the Dalai Lama, what's the ultimate spiritual truth? And he said, and has said, all is well. And he pauses, that Lama pause, and gets, so you're paying, really paying attention, waiting, hanging for what he's going to say. And he repeats it very slowly. All is well. And I have trouble with that. All doesn't seem well to me. Mm. I look around the world as a, but I'll tell you something. I have faith that that's true. I have difficulty with it, but I have faith. The source of all the suffering is my in my life is my inability to accept things just exactly as they are. And today I have faith that everything is absolutely as it should be. It couldn't possibly be any different than it is. That if I think that it should be different, it's just whistling in the dark. It stays the same. This is the way things are. Mm. And I have to accept that. Even if I want to change it, I have to accept it. When this faith entered my life, and it took me a while to realize that that is what has happened, I would have never labeled it that. When this faith started happening, when I started really paying attention to the universe as a giving entity, that I'm being supplied with everything I need, the fears subsided, Hmm. you know, the promises started really coming more true. And that's an inside thing, not an outside thing. Nothing external has changed. My perception, the psychic change, my perception of the world around me has changed. Do I look at it through rose-colored glasses? No. I'll give you an example of that, (coughs) of what that looks like. My wife and I went through Yellowstone National Park because it's been a couple of years now. Um, it was a wonderful trip. We went on a road trip, 3,000 miles in a couple of weeks. And we were going through Yellowstone Park. And she had never been there and had been uh, since I was a kid that I was there. And an incredible place and beautiful place. We're driving along and there's a bunch of people on the side of the road looking at something out in this meadow, this beautiful meadow. And they've got their spy glasses, their telescopes. We pull over. We stop. We get out. And you can see a wolf eating an elk carcass. And this woman says, would you like to look through my telescope? I go, absolutely. So she, you know, and I looked at it. It was stunning. I mean, just raw nature. You know, this wolf just tearing his long spindly, gnarly-looking wolf, you know, eating this elk carcass. And this guy's sitting on the tailgate of his truck behind me. And he says, you know what happened over there? I said, well, yeah, the wolf killed the elk. And he goes, well, more specifically, what happened is there was a cow elk that had a baby. They had a calf and the wolves came and killed her calf. And she stood there in mourning for a couple of days, mourning the death of her calf. And then the wolves came and took her out. <clears throat> and I looked at the guy and went, oh, and he goes, yeah. Now we look at that from a human perspective. I go, well, that's not fair. What a sad thing. But there it is evidently this is the way things are and I can make a judgment about that you know I'm human I can't well that's not fair I feel sad for the cow elk what a tragedy in her life and then she died because she's in mourning what a sad thing but there it is you know I look at my own life I've had tragedies in my life you know things have happened and there it is. It seems to be this is the way life is. Is life a veil of tears? Is that all it is? It hasn't been my experience. Hmm. I've had some wonderful, very uplifting experiences. You know, I've had love has entered my life. Children have entered my life. You know, I've, I've had, I've traveled the world. I've had some really good, I've had a good life. <clears throat> the first 20 years were a bit rough, You know, you know, 25 years or so, but I've had a great life, but I have to accept all of it. And human beings are in duality. They want all the good and none of the bad. There there should be no bad. And and I'm, I'm the one labeling it bad. I'm even giving it the name. You know, when Ramesh, I told you about sitting in that back room, and he says, I love you, alcoholics and drug addicts. The rest of them are trying, at that same seating, My friend Wayne gave him a bumper sticker back in the day. Remember this shit happens bumper stickers? Mm -hmm. We hand this Indian guru this bumper sticker and he goes, precisely, shit happens. It just (laughs) happens. I've been saying that for years, you know, but then he said the significant thing. Isn't it interesting that we label it shit? It's just stuff. Mm -hmm. Stuff happens. Things just happen. There's no morality to it. It just is. I add the morality and I suffer. I think it shouldn't happen and it keeps happening and I suffer. We talked about that in in the first step. So here's the fear inventory. If I can get to this place where I realize the light can't exist without the darkness, that there is no duality, there isn't good and bad, everything is just the way it is, The fear has a tendency to drain away. The fear is based on what if bad things happen to me? Fear is a projection into the future based upon experiences in the past that I've labeled as good and bad. When that begins to go away, when that judgment begins to go away, when faith enters, and I have faith even though I don't like things that they're the way they're supposed to be, that perception of the universe around me, that psychic change happens, one of the indicators of that is the fear begins to fall away. Now, in the inventory, if what I'm bringing to the table, this life lived with seeming power, the end result is going to be resentment, fear, and in the relationship category. If what I'm bringing to the relationships is resentment and fear, what could I possibly have? But dramatic and traumatic relationships. <laughs>
1: that's right.
0: What else could there possibly be but me trying to extract something out of these relationships so that I'll feel better? There's no giving going on here. There's only taking. You know, that's that's what it's going to look like. When you hear people say, "I had to leave that relationship because I wasn't getting my needs met," when I hear that, it just makes my skin crawl. Mm -hmm. my needs. What needs do I have that need to be met by you and you have failed me? Mm. I mean, God, (laughs) that is the the epitome of self-centeredness that I'm going to get this relationship and you need to fulfill my needs. And if you can't do that, I'm going to throw you away and move on to the next one. It's like when your sponsor tells you at some point in your recovery process when you go to a meeting, are you going there to get something out of it or to add something to it? Mm-hmm. And there came a time when I started going to AA meetings to add something to it. I realized that what my job is is to find you there. That's where we find each other. That's not where the recovery is. Mm-hmm. It's a part of it, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, the fellowship is key. But really, you know where the recovery happens? is out in my backyard in my little ashram where we're reading the books and smoking cigars. and. That's where recovery is. Mm -hmm. I found you in the meeting, or you found me. Kitchen table AA. Kitchen table AA. It happens at Denny's at 3 o'clock in the morning. Back in the day, you could smoke in Denny's. We would smoke, drink coffee, and eat banana splits. 3 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) My peer group, the class of 85, you know. That's where the recovery really happened. When we're talking to each other, you know. What would your sponsor tell you? You know, that kind of stuff.
1: Bill, this has been enjoyable, as it always is. We basically got through the four-step. We didn't even get through the third part of the four-step in full, but we can cover that next time we get together, the broken relationships, sex part, you know, um, page 69. Um, And that's where we'll pick up when we get together next time. Does that sound like a deal? Good. All right, so let me read uh, page 164 of the book. It says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Mr. Bill C., as you trudge, the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Once again, Mr. Bill thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you, John.
1: That is Mr. Bill C where recovery happens. well, said, if you are out there and you're listening to this episode and you believe that somebody else could benefit from hearing the episode, please take a moment to pause your device and share the episode or the entire podcast with a friend or family member. It would be much appreciated. All right, now on to a little bit of listener feedback for you, the first bit of Feedback comes in here from Scarlet. Scarlet writes in and she says, oh my God. Well, she says OMG actually, but I am pretty sure that means oh my God or oh my goodness, however you want to take that, with an exclamation point after. She says, that is so heckin' Cool. Now, I had never heard that term before, and that's why I wanted to put this at the top of the listener feedback before or today, just because I love that phrase. Uh, that is so heckin' Cool. Thank you. We are in Frederick, Maryland. We or we are or were out of the Frederick Frederick Club, which has been going for decades, albeit in different locations. My mom and dad both got sober there, and before I was born, I actually asked my mom about a couple of old timers, and she remembered them. And by the way, when Scarlett started this out by saying this so heckin' cool, uh, she's talking about she had asked me to to uh, uh, speak at one of their, their virtual meetings there. And uh, I said, oh, well, of course, I am honored to do that, Miss Scarlett. But nonetheless, and uh, then she goes on and says, uh, though she is drinking and has been For quite a few years, she's talking about her mom. She is a functioning alcoholic for the most part. She has always been my rock. And now I'm being gifted the opportunity to be that rock for her, for her, while all this mess is going on in the world. It is very difficult, but I'm letting my higher power take the wheel when it's most needed. And they are coming through for me. And I couldn't be more grateful. (laughs) <laughs> That's great. Today I went shopping for my mom and stepdad who were both at high risk. Then I was able to administer first aid for my stepfather when he took a nasty fall to calm down my mama who was on the verge of nervous breakdown over that on top of every on, on top of everything else. I was able to remember that breathing is an is important in a panic situation and got her to take some deep breaths with me before they went to the hospital. I was able to calmly clean up the blood off the front porch while they were gone so it wouldn't further traumatize my mom when they got back. Thank God he is okay. Some butterfly sutures and an x-ray. I was watching from the back seat and I'm so thankful for finding a strength and a power greater than myself. I did let it lose I did lose it a little bit after dropping off some gloves and a jacket at the hospital for my stepdad to keep covered up in case Uh, any contaminants were there but i was able to get to the zoom meeting she's talking about the zoom meeting and uh, she i believe uh shared on that same meeting here last week uh, in in uh uh, maryland uh what part of maryland is it again it is in uh frederick maryland oh hey my son just dropped in let me give him a hug real quick (laughs) can you say hello to the super speak listeners just say hello hello Good job. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to continue on with uh, listener feedback, all right? Uh, I was reading uh, Scarlet's Letter, just so you know, okay? Hey, isn't Scarlet Letter, isn't that like a book or something like that? The Scarlet Letter. Have you ever read that in school? (laughs) <laughs> okay i thought so anyway all right so anyway uh, let me go back and now i gotta find my place i'm so sorry scarlet uh but i was able to get back into the zoom meeting a little late and cry it out there with my family that's the way it should work miss Scarlett. then we had the group conscious conscience and again i watched as i volunteered to chair lead question mark host question mark our wednesday meeting and find speakers wow uh our group is a daily group and things have shuffled up a little bit since all this happened and meeting switched online so here i am agrophobic <laughs> old me <laughs> reaching out to folks and trying to get speakers laugh out loud god is good well thanks for thinking of me miss Scarlett. being of service will help me get out of my head i'm sure you can relate oh yes i can miss Scarlett. uh then we talk about um, I one don't, or i don't want to talk about this part because i'm afraid it may uh uh give away her anonymity. So I'm, I'm going to skip that part. And she says, I actually shared tonight in the Zoom meeting and told them that I've been finding strength in your podcast. Please feel free to ask anything you need about appearing uh, at their group. Uh, if I don't know the answer, I'll be happy to find it and let you know you were actually the first person I ever reached out to for speaking. So I'm kind of winging it. Thank you again so much, Scarlett. Well, Scarlett, I hope this turns out to be a good uh, and pleasant experience for you. you may they regret this after hearing my talk nonetheless jason writes in and jason says hello john thanks for reaching out my name is jason p i almost said his last name i'm an alcoholic i live in hmm p-o-u-l-s-b-o washington polsbo polsbo I'll just go with that, Washington. My sobriety date is 12-21-2013. My home group is the Oasis Group. What a cool name for a group. And we meet on Saturday at 7.30 a.m. and study the Big Book and the 12 by 12. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor, and I sponsor men. 22 years of bouncing in and out of the rooms in an ugly way taught me that I have to carry the message. I plan on sticking around. So far, I've only browsed through the SoberSpeak speakers, but my plan is to start listening more depth this evening. Thanks again, Jason. Well, Jason... I am glad you found us, and I am glad you're browsing, and I hope you enjoy the speakers. If you have any feedback on them, please let me know david k writes in from the alanon family group and david says john i'm a son of two alcoholic parents from long beach california i started my recovery in Alatine long enough to get the gift of Alatine, which was a drug addicted girlfriend exclamation point i hit a bottom after leaving the program on october 3rd 1997, I was 22. My parents and older sister were all sober. So as in the so as in the alcoholic, the drinking is just a symptom for the family as well. The day before my dad had a stroke, I prayed for his death my whole life and was faced with his death. Death. I struggled in Al-Anon for years as I focused on the differences so sad, because sadly, too often, the focus seems to be on others. This program was introduced to me by by Bill C. from Torrance. All the best. David K from Long Beach, California. Thank you, David, for writing in. I really do appreciate it. Michael... Writes in and he says, "John, oh, here's another ge- uh, gentleman who's uh, friends with Bill C. I am good friends with Bill C." who has been doing the steps on your show. He told me about your show. I'm happy to access it as I now live in Sicily. Thank you, Michael T. And he actually gave me his phone number. Now, if I were to read that phone number, I should do that someday. Just like have this go out in thousands and thousands and thousands of people and just see who gets a text just for the heck of it. Nah, I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't want anybody to do that to me. But anyway, uh, thank you for for Michael for writing in, who now lives in Sicily. Sicily, oh, that's that's a one spicy meat ball It's the pizza pie <laughs> I'm so sorry you know i wonder how italians imitate americans and uh And, and, you know, and this is something, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. This is something else I think about sometimes. So, okay, so when we imitate people that are from uh, uh, Italy, and I'm not saying it's even accurate at all, but, you know, like over here in America, we say stuff like it's a one spice meatball and it's a pizza pie. But as soon as an Italian comes to New Jersey, all of a sudden we're saying, how are you doing? So what happens when people come from Italy and move over to New Jersey, what is that? Uh, uh, how does that occur? That 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 language and accent uh, just it, it blows up. Okay, I, I'm I'm going off the rails now. I'm, I'm so sorry. Anyway, a Susan writes in from. <laughs> I, <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, You know, this quarantine is getting to me, folks. I think uh, it's time for me to (laughs) get a little out, get out of the house. I just, in fact, after this, I'm going to go take a walk uh, out of my neighborhood. But anyway, Susan writes in from... Ireland! She says, Hello! No, that's not a... Uh, She said, What's a brogue? Uh, Anyway, she says, John, I refer to episode 128 Stephen F., when he mentioned his third step prayer, which comes from a course in miracles, this is a prayer that I also use on a regular basis. I was pleasantly surprised to hear Stephen F. mention it. It is so relative to AA's third step. I printed it off and have given it to many of my AA friends. Brilliant! That's what people from the United Kingdom say. Oh, we say United Kingdom and Ireland are now separate. But I, I think no, isn't that right? Yeah, Ireland's its own thing, and then the United Kingdom. The rest, but nonetheless, uh, brilliant to hear Stephen F. mention it. Keep up the good work. Triple X Susan from Ireland. She's from Dublin, and she also sent me the copy <clears throat> of that prayer she was referencing. So thank you, Miss Susan from Dublin. We appreciate it. And, and Triple X back at you. Triple X in the like kiss. Kiss kiss. I think that's what that means. Uh, I'm sure it does back in Ireland. Hug, hug, kiss, kiss, whatever. I'm sorry. Anyway, Susan writes in and she says, hi, John, my name is Sue. Oh, I guess it's Sue. I apologize. Well, but then she signs as Susan, I think. nonetheless. I guess it could be she could go both ways. It, well, you know what I mean? anyway like she she goes by Sue and Susan nonetheless my name is Sue I live in Aurora Colorado which is a suburb of Denver yes ma'am I have been there my sobriety date is May 20th 1998 I came to the rooms of October you know, on October 20th 1987 after 20 years of alcohol and drugs and I was a stumbling mess but never uh, really left 20 seems to be the magical number for me. Just notice. Well, I am so glad that you came to that revelation while writing in to me at Soberspeak. Anyway, she says, my granddaughter introduced me to the podcast app last year. Uh, When the stay-at-home order hit, I browsed the podcast for AA, and I found you in big capital letters Exclamation point. I love this. Your speakers are excellent. I am hooked. Thanks so much for your service, Sue or Susan, who goes both ways. You know what I'm saying, right? All right. Chris D uh, DMs me on the IG. And Chris D says, John, thank you so much for all you do. I also chair a speaker meeting in my hometown of Pocatello, Pocatello, Idaho. Our meeting is called A Vision for You, and at the end of the meeting, we also read the same passage out of page 164 that you do. This is my third week listening to your podcast, and I'm loving every minute of it. May the May the God of your understanding bless you and your family on this Easter day, he wrote on Easter day, uh, your very grateful, recovered friend, Chris D. Well, thank you, Chris D. Thank you for writing in. I think, folks, that is another week of listener feedback, and it is another episode in the bank is you say in the bank or do you say in the bank, uh, uh, uh in the reserves in, uh, uh, you know, okay. So now I know this when I have an episode that's like, uh, that, that is one that I have out there waiting to be released. That one is in the can. Oh, uh, maybe it's on the books in the books. Uh, nonetheless, you know what I'm saying? We're finished. And this one is over this particular episode right here. Now I will try to make it back next week, I always say one week at a time. I truly mean that. I don't know if I'm going to get to make it back, but so far, I don't think I've missed a, a week in like two years or whatever, even when I thought I was going to miss them. Uh, even through the flu, uh, you know, I'm kind of like the 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 postman. Uh, is that what it is? Yeah, the postman, who, you know, through sleet and rain. Now, I don't have to deal with the sleet and rain, uh, but I do have to deal with other uh, uh, instances coming up in my life. All right. That's it. God bless you. Love y'all. We'll probably see you next week. Once again, thanks for listening in. Keep coming back, folks. It truly does work if you work it.